Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I am an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey. Together we will explore the secrets of different game mechanics and reach the next level as a game designer. In today's episode of the Nerd Lab, I have the honor to talk to Paul Krogan of the Gaming Rules YouTube channel. Paul is creating a huge amount of content in the board game industry. He is famous for his instructional YouTube videos, he explains rules, does a lot of reviews and playthroughs, but he's also professionally editing rulebooks and is performing demos at conventions. I have no clue how many games Paul played in his life, but it must have been hundreds. Um, and the bad thing is, Paul did not only play games, he was also involved in the development of Mage Knight. I'm very happy um, that he found the time for us today, um, and I would like to welcome you to the show, Paul. Welcome. Thank you very much, Marvin. Thanks for having me on. What an introduction, eh? Gosh, I've got a lot to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, today we want to talk a little bit about a theme in games, um, a topic that you have uh, quite a bit of experience with. Mm -hmm. But before we dive into this topic, um, could you please introduce yourself, Paul, and tell the listeners where your passion for games comes from and how you ended up in the board game industry? Yeah, so I, I, as you say, my name is Paul Grogan. I run the YouTube channel of Gaming Rules, um, and I am known for the things that you mentioned. You know, I create instructional videos online. Uh, I also do playthrough videos. I'm also a reviewer as well. So I, I wear multiple different hats in the industry because at the end of the day, I'm a gamer. I've been a gamer since the 80s. Uh, my passion is playing games and I love playing games. So I take the work hat off sometimes and I put my reviewer hat on and I do review videos. I also write and edit rule books, as you say, and in the background I do a lot of game development. So not just Mage Knight, but there's a lot of games that are coming out this year or that have been out in the last few years that I actually was part of the development team for. Some of which have been extremely successful, which I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about. Um, but yeah, that, tell, that's tell a, us about them. What kind of games were oh, you? Oh gosh, just um, just a few of them. Just a few of them. Well, uh, I mean, Letter Jam from CGE, which is coming out at Essenspiel this year. Um, I was a developer on the team for that for about a year and a half, um, and it's really nice to see all of the reviews that are coming in for that, which are pretty much extremely positive about that game. And people might look at that game and go, "Oh yeah, well it's dead easy. It's just letters in stands, and you make words, and that's it." the amount of time and effort that goes into development, just tweaking all of the little things, um, you know, over a year and a half. And that, that, that game changed a lot over the years. But no, I've, I've, I've been involved in a lot of games. What, what I think is quite... Um, well, it's, it's, it's maybe a bit of a funny story, but some publishers hire me to write their rule books. And they only hire me to write their rule books because they've heard I'm a good rule book writer. So they go... We want to get you to write your, our rule book. And during that process, I say to them, I'm, I'm also a bit of a games developer. How would you feel if I gave you a couple of comments on my feelings about certain things within the game? And generally speaking, they are open to listen. And generally speaking, 50% of the time, roughly, they accept my changes that I'm suggesting to the game. So even if you hire me to become a rule book writer you're going to get game development on the side because I can't keep my mouth shut. If, I, if I've <laughs> got a great. thought, if I've got something that I think I want to say, I'll be like, oh, have you thought about this? And as I say, half of the time they go, no, we've thought about that. We don't want that. That's not the game we're playing. And the other times they'll go, 
oh, that's a really good idea. Let's test that. And then it's in. And it's really nice for me. And this is really background stuff. You know, you do your videos on YouTube and people see it and they know it's you. You write a rule book and if people look in the back of the rule book, you see, oh, editing, Paul Grogan, gaming rules. Most people don't see all of the little bits of development that go on in the background. And what's really nice for me is to see people sat there at conventions or wherever playing a game and they're playing a game and they're enjoying the game and I'm looking at that game and going, oh, that little bit there, that was, that was me, that. And that, that, that was me as well. It gives me, you know, I'm quite proud of that, um, especially when the game's good. If the game's not good, then uh, I'm not so proud of it. <laughs> of course not. So when did when did you get into the industry? So how, when did your YouTube channel start, for example? Yeah, I mean, it's been around, I think it's six years now. Um, but I was kind of in the industry. Again, this, this is a very long story. We could have a whole podcast just about this. But essentially, I am, I am a gamer, as I mentioned. I've been going to Essen. This is my 20th year of going to Essen. So I've been around a long time. I've been in the game's hobby a, a long time. And I'm extremely passionate to the point where I, I'm, I'm too passionate because I, <laughs> I get angry and frustrated and wound up by certain things. Um, and one of the things that I was trying to do for the hobby, which, which I loved, was to basically help some of the publishers who I really liked. So when CGE first arrived in 2006 with a, with a card game called Through the Ages, and I was like all over it, over the next year or two, I got to know them. And then I said, look, I love your games. These games are just fantastic. And I really like them. And I, I, I really like what you're doing. If there's any way at all that I could help out with something, then, you know, please let me know. So they would be sending me uh, prototypes, which I would play with my friends, and I'd do all of this. And this went on for years, and I wasn't being paid for any of it because I had a I had a well-paid IT job. I was doing it because it was my hobby, and for me, I was getting a kick out of it because I was like, oh, I get to see the new CGE games beforehand and all of this lot. But essentially, it was work that I was doing. You know, I was spending three days printing and creating a prototype of Dungeon Pets, which I'd then travel to a UK convention and spend two days demoing it to people for no financial compensation whatsoever because I was, you know, I, I, I wanted to do it. And in the end, the boss of CGE and Vlager sat me down one day. This is going back six, seven years ago now, maybe. And they said, Paul, on average per week, how many hours of work do you do for us? And I worked it out that it was probably about, well, maybe a month. It was probably about 20 hours a month that I was doing for them for, for, for free. You know, editing rule books and helping with testing games and everything else. And they said, well, we, we can't keep letting you do this. It's not fair on you that you're doing all of this work for us for no money. We need to start paying you. And I was like, oh, okay. And that's how it started. Um, that's, that's essentially the, the big the step for me doing it as a volunteer. And if you look on BGG eight to 10 years ago, you will find like FAQ documents created by me because I was very passionate about rule books. And if a game was out there and the rule book wasn't clear, I would be asking all of these questions to the designer, getting all of the different answers together and creating an FAQ document. That was just something that was in my blood. It was something I wanted to do. Um, but then when CGE started paying me for the work that I did, over a couple of years period, uh, things with my professional career weren't working out as much as I wanted and I decided that I would make a, a change and I would try and start working in the industry. Now, it was a big risk. You know, so many people ask me, Paul, I, I, I want to do what you do. Tell me how to do it. 
what I did was a big risk. I left a job, I started Gaming Rules without any idea of whether this would be a full-time job or a part-time job or, you know, it might not work out at all. I would be approaching publishers who I'd been doing free work for and saying, I'm going to start charging you now and this is how much I'm going to start charging. Um, and, and it was a big risk and it's worked out in my case, which, which is good, but I know a number of other people who are, who are trying to do it and it's not that easy. You can't just mail a publisher and say, hi, you know, I'm Joe Bloggs. I edit rule books. If you pay me, I'll edit your rule books. The publishers are unlikely to, you know, just snap you up on that straight away. What I've had is I've, as I say, I've been going to Western for 20 years. I've been in the hobby a long time. I've got a lot of contacts. I know a lot of people. I've got that background. And that's, that's really helped get to, uh, get to where I am. And uh, yeah, that, that's where I am now. It's, it's, it's definitely full time, trust me. I've had, I think, two days off in four years. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I believe that, that, that but it's a great it's a great story and I know a lot of uh, uh, listeners of this show also want to to get into the industry and mm -hmm. um, they, it's re really uh, inspirational to, to, to hear how you made it and um, would you say it's uh, still a good idea to approach publishers and offer some kind of volunteer free work to get into the industry well it's how I started I mean so I, I, I can't not recommend that because that's how it worked for me If you, if you want to get to where, where I am, or if you just want to do a little bit of it, find a publisher that you like, approach them and say, look, I'm a big fan of your work, I love this game, I love that game, and if, the, you, know, if you ever needed any help, just another pair of eyes on the rulebook, or if you ever needed any playtesting or anything like that, let me know. You know. And if you're not desperate for the money, you know, if you can do it alongside your other job, start doing it, start offering to help, and then you know see how it works that's how it worked out for me kind of accidentally but um yeah i'd, I'd probably recommend that thank you paul that was great advice and um, thank you all also for introducing yourself and giving us some insights about about your own journey i know this is not the first time you you're going to talk about theme in games mm -hmm. um, actually one of my listeners um, major hogan recommended you as a subject matter expert for thematic games right And um, here we are, um, <laughs> here talking, we are. About, talking about uh, thematic games. Um, and as a starting point, I would propose to, to start with the definition of theme. So what would you say is theme for you in a game? Absolutely. We have to start with the definition because everybody's definition of this word is different. Exactly. So we're going to have to define what we think it is and everything that we talk about or everything that I talk about is based on my definition of the word theme and a thematic game. And, and possibly that would be different from what somebody who's listening to this show. So for me, a thematic game, well, l l let's start with the two different words of setting and theme. Most games have a setting. If you take something like Castles of Burgundy as an example, that has a setting. I can't remember what the setting is. It's probably some medieval city in some wherever right but it has a setting but it has no theme it is not a thematic game but it has a setting so for me a, a game is a thematic game and a game has theme when the mechanisms within the game match what reality would actually be and that's it it's basically a, a you know application of game mechanisms Do they fit with the setting? And if they do, 
then it's a thematic game. But everything is a sliding scale. You know, you'll, you'll, if you take zero to 100, I can, you, you give me a game and I can tell you, in my opinion, where it fits on that scale. It isn't just black and white. There aren't just thematic games and non-thematic games. There are Euros out there which are probably would not be classed as thematic games, but there might be a couple of little rules in them which, which are thematic rules. So, yeah, it, it's definitely a sliding scale. Anyway, that's my definition of a thematic game. I really like it. I really like the, the, to distinguish between a setting and a theme. Yeah. Um, for me, a thematic game is um, when, the, when the actions and the decisions you make um, and the outcome, especially the outcome, if all of the, uh, these make sense. So if they correlate with the real world or at least a fictional yeah. world. So what you do in the game is really what the character for example that you represent would do in the real world or the fictional world as well yeah and you talked about that scale and i love that as well because um for me the most thematic game easily is dungeons and dragons okay so when i roll a dice for a dexterity skill check for example do to determine whether or not i'm able to climb up that mountain in order to escape from a monster uh, all of it makes sense for me The action of climbing a mountain is not a trivial one. Therefore, the chance of failure is real. The skill check makes sense for me. Yeah. Um, I'm under pressure, which may result in a penalty for that skill check. Also realistic. Maybe my character has the equipment like climbing hooks or rope or any other form of equipment that could give me an advantage for that skill check. That also makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And the outcome of my role also makes sense because either I manage to climb up or I lose um, the grip and fall down. Yeah, um, And I know RPGs are maybe not directly comparable to board games. I know there's a game master. The rules are often more interpreted than strictly um, yep. strict rules. <laughs> um, and a lot happens in players' minds instead of on a board or, or, or with cards or meeples. Yeah. But for me, RPGs are the pinnacle of thematic games. And yeah. even if they are not directly comparable, I thought about what makes them so thematic. Okay. And I have come up with three, three reasons. The first one is um, the narrative plays an important role and it really helps players to get into a thematic mood. Um, the second is you control a character or one could say you really represent that character. Yeah. And it's easier to identify yourself with a specific human-like character than it would be to get involved with, a, I don't know, a raven trying to steal some cherries from a tree or um, a frog trying to jump into a well. So yeah, it makes sense. And the third thing is that in an RPG campaign, you are faced with realistic situations and your actions cause realistic consequences, which, of course, come to, come to life by adding narrative to them. Yeah. So, so for me, this is the, the top of the, um, okay. the, pinnac the pinnacle of a, of a thematic game. And on the other end, there are maybe abstract games where you only have uh, cards with printed numbers on them and you compare the numbers. There's no theme at all, maybe. Yeah. So, and um, what would you say is, is, is in between? Is there some games that you can cluster yeah. in between? Or is it just a, though you said it's not black and white. So what is in between for you? Yeah, I mean, just, just going back to what you've identified there is, for, for me, and, I, and I'm not disagreeing with what you're saying, but I would class some of the stuff that you've just described as thematic as immersive. Mm -hmm. So the fact that you're playing a game you feel that you're actually playing the character, you're on a narrative story and everything else, you are immersed in that game. That, for me, I, I mean, I can play 
a very, very thematic game that doesn't have that, is what I'm saying. So I, I, would, I would separate them. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned role-playing games. Because, and I'm glad we're having this conversation now and not three years ago, because three years ago I would have said something different. Um, let's take something like Descent or Gloomhaven or mm-hmm. any kind of dungeon-crawling type game. Now, I'm, I'm a Eurogamer by heart. I like moving little wooden cubes around and I like deterministic results. And a few years ago, I would have hated roll-to-resolve games. Now, I'm still not a big fan of roll-to-resolve as a, as a game mechanism. Certainly in a competitive game, I don't like roll-to-resolve in a competitive game. Because you know, win or lose can be just down to random dice look. But when we come to combat, and let's take you know, Gloomhaven or Descent or any kind of you know, dungeon crawler adventure where you are in a fight with a monster... If that fight is done in a deterministic way, such as Mage Knight, which is my number one favourite game, it's, I mean, I, I get excited when I play Mage Knight because it's a challenge and it's a puzzle and, oh, how am I going to play these cards? Oh, and then I'll bring that. But it's a different style to, I'm going to try and hit the dragon, I'm going to try and hit the dragon, and you're rolling your dice in your hand and you roll them and you're like, yeah! You don't have that with Mage Knight. You don't have that... The role, the surprise, the excitement. Is it going to hit? Is it not going to hit? And if we go back to the original topic, which is thematic games, I think it's absolutely thematic that in a fight, I mean, not that I get into sword fights with dragons, but if you're trying to fight a monster, it would be kind of random whether you hit or not, but it would be based on your skill, you know, your skill with the weapon, or all of those factors which you mentioned earlier on positives and negatives, bonuses and minuses from your, uh, from your attack roll, and then you work out whether you, whether you hit or not. So if you want something in the middle between role-playing games, then I would say these ones that sort of advertise themselves as a role-playing game, but they're actually just a board game. Mm-hmm. You know? I, I agree with that, um, that they would be in the middle somewhere. Yeah. And you, also, you also mentioned um, Euro games and these games like Mage Knight and Gloomhaven and whatsoever, they, they all have at least some kind of narrative um, in the game. And in Euro games, you often do not have, uh, narrative doesn't play too much of a role there. No, no. Um, so what, when you compare them, where would you, would you put the Euro games on that scale? Well, it, it really depends on the game. Okay. As I say, Castles of Burgundy, we mentioned earlier on, right? That is right down at the bottom of the scale. If, if I was building up some kind of village in medieval Europe, I would not be rolling 2d6, choosing tiles from an area, and then putting them on a location that matches the number that I rolled. That's a purely abstract game with a setting. And, you know, well, actually saying that, maybe it's not right down at the end of the scale because the buildings that you can build, if you build the bank, it gives you two silver. Okay, you could say that's thematic. You know, if you build the, the, the barracks, you get four extra workers. Okay, there's a very slight correlation between the building name and the effect that they have on the game. But that's right down at the end of the scale. And I've not got a problem with that. Stefan Feld is one of my favourite designers, and I love 99% of his games. Well, not that he's made 100 of Maybe 95% of his games. Let's go to the other end of the scale. On a, on a Euro game which I feel is very thematic, and that is Flam Rouge. Flam Rouge is a Euro game. You are playing cards and you're in a bike race and everything else. But all of the rules of the game 
you go, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, at the end of each turn, the cyclist who is at the head of the group takes an exhaustion card because they're the ones at the front of the group and they're basically, you know, breaking the air or, or, or whatever. It's, it's harder work for them. The way that the hills work in the game, the way that going uphill, the, the, the game mechanisms that support the, the cycling uphill work exactly as you think they would. And as the game goes on, your riders get tireder and tireder, which is represented by the fact that you're running out of cards in your deck and you're becoming more and more exhausted. It's a brilliant game and it is extremely thematic. And I would say that that, that is a, a very good example of a thematic Euro game. Yeah, I really like it. I didn't know that game, but it sounds it sounds great. Yeah. Um, for me, it's all it's all about the the real, the decisions you make and mm -hmm. the, op the options you have as a player. Because I want that options to be kind of similar to the options the character would have in that situation. And in, in your example, um, I would ha probably have the option to, to be the one in the front or not. And um, if, I, if, I, if I decide to be the, um, the, the bike in the front, I would probably have uh, to draw more of the exhaustion cards than the other players. And this yep. would be a decision that is a decision a, a real uh, bicycler would have um, as well. And the result would also be a, a real result. So this is what yeah. makes the game for me thematic. Yeah. I mean, if we, if we take, take a standard worker placement euro, okay? So there is an action space on the board, and if you go there, you collect three wood, right? Mm -hmm. That, the fact that I, I have a worker and we're in a forest and we're in medieval England and I go there and I take three wood... It could be an abstract game, is I place my marker on that space and I take three green cubes, right? The fact that you've called it a worker and three wood doesn't make it a thematic game. But here's how we can make that game a little bit more thematic, right? You're going to place that worker on that space. You've got a choice. You can either get three wood by, by doing a full day's work, or if you want to, you can only collect one or maybe two wood, but then you sneak home early and you will gain you know, some happiness points or whatever because you've sneaked away from home early and sat at home. Or if you really wanted to, you could work extra and you can collect four wood, but then you get home late and you're tired and you'll lose one stamina. So suddenly you have decisions to make in the game which not only are important decisions to make in the game, but the outcome of those decisions has a realistic and thematic outcome. You can actually imagine going, oh, I tell you what, I need four wood to build the shed. And I really need that four wood now because Dave's coming around tomorrow to build the shed. So I'll tell you what, yeah, today I'm going to go to the forest and I'm going to spend all day and I'm going to work really hard and I'll get me four wood. But then tomorrow I'm going to be fatigued. So I'm going to be able to do less on the next day. You can, and going back to the immersion thing again, you now feel that you're that character in the game and you've actually made that decision. And, you know, if more games were like that, where they, there was thematic explanations for the rules... Uh, you know, and the, and the game mechanics supported it, then then that would be great. You know, because a lot of people assume that because I'm a Euro gamer, I don't like thematic games. And it's completely wrong. You know, it's just that most of the games I play don't have many thematic rules in them. But when they have thematic rules, if I was playing that game that I've just described to you, and I'm hoping one of your listeners now goes off and designs that and game, because I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd play it, I would enjoy that game more because... You can you can imagine those 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 things happening, and the the rules of the game and the mechanisms in the game have actually made me feel that this is a 
this is a real situation that where you know the decisions I make are actually you know they matter. Yeah, it's more or less a simulation of the real world in some yeah, kind. That's it. And yeah. the question really is from from a designer's perspective is how much of the real life do you want to simulate in your game? So yeah. because in some for, some ways you have to abstract your game. I, you do. I mean, of course you can go to the to the forest and chop some some wood there, but um, in real life maybe your wife calls and um, you have to go <laughs> you, you go home because your your kid fall of um, of, of of the bed or whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have to abstract the game. And do you have any? Um, Tips or advice for for game designers how to find the sweet spot here between um, simulation and abstraction of uh, of the real life. Well, the thing is, with the gaming industry and the gaming hobby as it is now, there are so many games coming out that there are games which uh, you can appeal to different target audiences. I mean, a game came out a few years ago called The Colonists, and I was very surprised when The Colonists came out because if you were to play The full game of Colonists with four players is eight hours. Games don't come out that take eight hours to play anymore. It's a rarity. Mm. And if somebody had said to me, if you said to me now, Paul, I've got this game, I'm designing it, it's going to be great, but it's going to take eight hours to play, I would advise you not to do that because your target audience is, is small and most people don't want a game that big and that long anymore. But there are some people that do. So bearing that in mind, for me to give any advice, it really depends. I might want a game where I put my worker on a space and I get three wood. I might want that. Other people might want it that, you know, like I described, I can choose to leave work early and only get two wood, or I can stay late and get four wood. Some people might want that. Some people might want every, every day you have to draw a random event card and your wife calls and your kid's fallen over at school and you've got to leave work and you've got to do all of that, they might want that. The more realistic you make your game, the more rules you're going to have to add and there comes a point where you just go, wait a minute, we've played one round of this game and it's taken us three hours because I'm rolling a dice to see whether I cross the road without getting <laughs> run over. You, know? <laughs> you, you, yeah. can, you can go crazy. Um, and I, yeah, I, my only advice is you need to decide from the start What kind of game you want to make? Are you going to make the ultimate realistic simulation of life? Or are you going to make a game which plays in 30 minutes? And once you've got your original concept, then you need to play it with people who are not your friends. I mean, that's my biggest piece of advice for any, any gamers. Don't play games with your friends. Well, play them once with your friends to see if it works, but then don't listen to what they say, because they're going to say it's great. Take it to independent playtest groups and get feedback from other people. And if you've got your, you know, your ultimate game that you've designed and you take it to a, a playtest weekend and 19 out of the 20 people who give you feedback say the game was too long and too complicated, you need to change it. You, you, need, you need to listen to that because otherwise what, it depends on why you want to make the game. If you want to make a game just for yourself, that's fine. But if you want to make a game that's going to be marketable, you need to listen to you know, independent advice from, from third parties. Um, yeah. Yeah, great. Thank you for the, for the advice here. Um, I really like it. And maybe we can, we can talk a bit more about designing uh, thematic games mm -hmm. because um, a lot of the listeners of the show are game designers and I think we, we tackle something here that, that can be very interesting. So you talked about um, the difference between setting and theme. 
So when you start to create a game, to design a game, what do you need in the beginning? Do you, do you start with the setting in mind or do you start with the theme in mind or do you start with mechanics in mind um, and put the theme or the setting on top of that? So what would be your advice? It, 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 can, it can be all of them. Um, I mean, you know, according to BGG, I am a games designer because I designed the, the last two Mage Knight expansions. Apart from that, I wouldn't actually say I'm a games designer. There, there isn't a game out there that I have created, designed and had published. Now, I've been designing little games myself for like 20 years. Um, some people, I, 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 would, I would say the setting is not something you would start with using the definition of setting as I described earlier on, which is just the world in which the game is played. Unless you had a particular thing and say, oh, I want to I design a game about building underwater cities. Right, okay, there you go. You, you've decided to design a game about building underwater cities. Then where do you go from there? Do you start with the theme and work backwards, or do you start with your mechanisms and work forward? But before that, you need to decide what kind of game you want to make. Are you designing a cooperative game? Are you designing a competitive game? Are you going to design one that has a particular victory condition or that has victory points? Do you want player trading in the game? Do you want player interaction in the game? All of these things, you kind of need to decide, you know, what, what you want in the, the, in the game first. And although I'm, I've not technically designed my own game and had it published, as I mentioned, I've had so many ideas for games in the past and I can talk through where the ideas came from. And generally speaking, they're all inspirations. Something that happened to me, you know, in real life gave me an inspiration and I thought, ah, there's a cool idea. I'm, I'm going to turn that into a game. And, and usually that's as far as I get, which is why, you know, I haven't <laughs> got any published games. So for me, it starts with you know, the inspiration, whether I'm out on a walk or I'm having a shower, I do most of my best thinking in the shower. Um, a, a few years ago, I was cutting uh, the hedge in the back of our garden and it was overgrowing and, it, was in, and it, it, it overgrows way too much. And I'm not really a big gardener and I was getting really fed up of the fact that this was uh, growing all the time. And suddenly I started having all of these ideas about a game about gardening and how you had to maintain the garden. And then I started thinking about and then I had a shower as I started thinking a bit more. And I thought, what if I have a game? Oh, yeah. And then over a, over a few day period, I came up with what I think is an excellent concept for a game. And that's as far as I got. I have a concept of this game. It's called English Country Garden. Every player is trying to grow flowers in their own garden. Uh, and whoever's got the best garden at the end of the, the, the month or the year wins. Right now, that sounds really boring, doesn't it? Well, I, I like gardening. Okay, well, I here's, here's the I would, twist. I would probably would probably add uh, seasons here because the gardens yep. look very different in different seasons. Yeah, and so mine, there's mine four seasons. Doesn't look very nice for for the autumn season, by the way. Yeah, so there's four seasons, and you'll score points at the end of each season, and whoever's got the most points at the end of the year will win the game. There you go. Right, here's the twist. It's in the future. Ah, nice. Okay. There's a weather control machine in the town. The guy who runs the weather control machine can be bribed with various objects. So what's, what's going to happen is I'm going to buy some strange purple seeds and I'm going to plant them. But my strange purple seeds need it to be cold and wet for them to grow. 
So I will, I will bribe, because uh, I know the guy who works in the weather control machine, he likes Formula One. So I'm going to buy him a subscription to a Formula One magazine in the hope that he will alter the weather to make it cold and wet so that my plants do better. Now, unfortunately, you've bought plants that need it to be sunny and dry. So your plants die because you didn't bribe them as much as me. So all of a sudden, we've got this, this cute idea for this gardening game set in a small English village. But suddenly it's in the future with alien plants and weather control machines. Uh, and that's as far as I got. I don't have any of the mechanics of the game. I have no mechanisms in the game at all. I just have a concept. So that's, that's, that's where a lot of my ideas came from is just inspiration from things that were happening, which I then wanted to turn into a game. So I guess for me, going back to the, what the question is, where would I go next with that game, is I would now start thinking what mechanisms would work, what game mechanisms would work for that game to be. Would, would there be a blind bidding system where in a particular phase of the game, everybody makes a blind bid to Derek, who works in the weather control machine building, and whoever's got the highest bid, you know. But then again, I hate blind bidding. So would I design a game that includes, although blind bidding might be the best mechanism for that game, that, th that thematically is the right one, would I want to design a game with blind bidding in when I hate blind bidding as a game mechanism? So yeah, you got all of those things to think about. That, but yeah, I'd have probably started next if I was to continue with that game, with the game, mecha game mechanisms next. But the setting came first because it was it was an idea okay that is um let me just throw something in here um, mm -hmm. mark rosewater lead designer of magic the gathering yeah always distinguished between top down and bottom up design right yeah for, for me this what what you described is is, is top down design yes um, because you start with a specific setting in mind um, while with bottom up design you would start with the mechanic or some kind of rule in mind yeah um, so um, the interesting aspect is that both design approaches can lead to incredible uh, Magic the Gathering sets. Yes. Um, so two of my favorite sets in Magic are Innistrad and Khans of Tarkir, for example. Okay. And Innistrad is a game, uh, a set in which is uh, placed in a gothic horror theme or in a gothic horror setting, if we, we stick with your definition. Yep. Um, and th this was completely designed um, top down. Okay. And Khans of Taki on the other side was designed with the idea of having three different sets, one large one, a small one, and then again a large one. And then the, and the specific thing about this is that the middle set, the small one, is either played with the large set, uh, the first large set, or the second, uh, the third large set. Okay. And um, you would never play all of the, the three together. Right. So this was a new way of drafting the game, but it was not thematic at all. But both... Um, approaches created very very good magic sets for me yeah the do you think it's important to start the design process with a theme in mind or do you think it can be also possible to start without a, a setting at all you can start without a setting at all i mean going back to stefan feld which mm -hmm. as i mentioned earlier on one of my favorite designers i'm pretty sure stefan has the mechanisms first i'm pretty sure he doesn't say hmm i'm gonna do i'm gonna try and design a game set in the city of Bruges, where, you know, this, that, and the other. I, do, I don't think he does that. I think he starts with mechanisms and goes, right, mm, I'm going to have a card game, and there's going to be cards that do this and that do that. And then at some point in the process, him or the publisher goes, 
Right, so we're going to have to apply a theme to this game, and we're going to have to pick a setting for it. Okay, well, let's have this one. And they put it on. Because, to be fair, although I, although I love these games, you could pretty much take 99% of the game, completely change the entire setting and artwork, and it would be exactly the same game. Um, that, and that might be a little bit unfair, but... You know, you could you could redo Castles of Burgundy to be Castles of Burgundy in space, mm-hmm. and it would be exactly the same game. Yeah, what Magic did with the Cans of Tarkia with the yeah. three different sets, they they planted the uh, the theme afterwards and, yeah. and the setting. So it was the first set was, um, and the last set were some kind of two different alternative timelines. Right, um, one in the present and one in the, f- uh, or oh, the both were in the present, and the small set in the, in between was happening in the past, and some big changes happened there. Though the third set um, had an alternative timeline. Yeah, okay. So I, I like this kind of uh, of, of uh, setting, but it was definitely planted outwards, and there could be another setting, but it it still is very um, concrete. It it fits it fits yeah. the, the the mechanics quite well. As you say, there's, there's two completely different ways of doing it. So yeah. w- we could be designing a game. We could be designing uh, a Magic the Gathering set together. And we could say, right, we want ninjas because ninjas are cool. Right. So we'll, we'll put a ninja in the game. Right. Now, what does a ninja do? Well, ninjas are sneaky. So let's come up with some game mechanisms that fit the fact that they're ninjas and they're sneaky. Right. There we go. We've got one. Alternatively, I could say, oh, I've got a really cool idea a game mechanic where I can put a card somewhere in the top few cards of your deck and then when it comes out, something bad happens to you. Right, that's a really cool idea, Paul. Now we need some kind of... Oh, well, let's have that... Let's let's call that the ninja. You know, and, mm-hmm. and both ways will lead to a card called the ninja that does a certain thing. And both ways are completely valid. So it's just, yeah. There's no advice I can give on that. It's just... Both methods work. That's been proved a number of times, and it's you know whatever suits you. I would say if you've got an idea for an extremely cool mechanism in your game, please try and find a thematic explanation for it. Don't don't just put it in the game and say this is a really really cool mechanism. But here here it is. Here's how the rules work. Because everybody's going well. That's really cool. But what's that? What's that actually representing? And, and most people, to be fair, if you're a Euro gamer, you don't need to know what it represents. You, know, it's just, you just need some wooden cubes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You just need some wooden cubes. Oh, so whenever you go to that location over there, you move this purple disc up one. Why? Well, you just, you just do. You know, that's just don't the ask. rules. Yeah, don't ask. You just do. Whereas if somebody says, ah, well, that purple disc represents the fact that you've trodden on three butterflies on your journey. Oh, right. That's the butterfly trodden on track. Yeah, okay. You know, you, yeah. So if you can apply some kind of thematic explanation to your game mechanism, then then please do so because it, it makes the game more enjoyable for me to play. It's all about me. That's, that's all I'm bothered about. <laughs> <laughs> I have one one question to you because yep. maybe I think we could have different opinions on it. Would okay. you say Magic: The Gathering is a thematic game? Oh, I've had this discussion before a few years ago. I remember now. <laughs> you had. Um, so some of the effects, right, let's start, let's start with flavor text. I personally don't think that putting flavor text on a card makes it a thematic game. But it helps, th- doesn't it? I, I think it helps. I think, yeah. well, Magic the Gathering is interesting because a lot of the flavor text in Magic the Gathering is just about the lore and the story. Whereas flavor text on other cards, for example, would actually be describing what's happening itself. 
So the, the flavor text on some cards is actually describing you play a card and it says you slash at the dragon with your sword and you get a clancing blow, three damage, right? Whereas the flavor text on the Magic the Gathering cards is generally just quotes about the setting, from what I remember. I've not played Magic for like 20 years. Yes, it is. Um, most of the time, it's just about the about the about the story. Yeah. Yeah, I think that that I I don't think that's making the game any more thematic. I think what it's doing is it's providing an extra bit of flavour for the people who who want that. As for whether the game itself is thematic, well, I mean, your your wizards and your summoning creatures that then go off and fight for you and attack your opponent. So in that way, it is thematic. But any, any card game which has a deck of cards, I, I have issues with. Bearing in mind Arkham Horror the card game is one of my favourite games of all time. But you build your deck at the start of the game and you put your guns or your equipment or your magnifying glass in it and then you have to wait for it to come out. Well, that's not realistic, is it? You know, you're an, you're an investigator, you've gone into a house, your gun is in your holster, your magnifying glass is in your pocket... But suddenly, you've got to wait for the cards to come out. Now, there is a game which came out which wasn't actually that big or popular. I mean, it's still going and it's still quite good. And it fixed that problem for me with all combat dueling card games. And that is Mage Wars. I don't know if you've played it. <laughs> I have it. I, I would have uh, mentioned it in my response to your... Uh... Right. <laughs> Now, yes. Ma Mage Wars and Mage Wars Academy, which I, I much prefer because it's shorter and a bit lighter. I, I am really surprised that when Mage Wars came out, the spellbook mechanic of Mage Wars wasn't suddenly adopted by dozens of other games. For those people listening who don't know what Mage Wars is, it is a wizards summoning creatures and fighting each other card game. Exactly the same premise as Magic the Gathering. However, you have a spellbook. You don't have a deck of cards. Your deck of cards is actually your spellbook, and you can choose what cards you want to cast from your spellbook whenever you want to cast them. It's amazing. And I, since playing Mage Wars, I'd gone off and I started to try and redesign Netrunner to use exactly the same mechanism. Because it's, it's more thematic. It's very realistic. If I see that you've summoned, you know, this big giant creature or something or other, I'll go... Oh my god, this big giant creature, what have I got to deal with that? Oh, I can create an entangle trap. Right. You know, I don't have to wait for to draw that card from my deck or have the look factor of did I have that card when I needed it. Suddenly, you know, you cast a fireball at me and I put up an ice shield. And things like that. It's the spellbook mechanic I think is fantastic. Yes, I like um, it. I like yeah. it as well. It's it's great. And there's one one more thing in the game which I think is also helping that it feels more thematic than magic, and that's um, that your character is rep represented um, on yes. the board. Yeah. Um, so that I mean, in, most, in magic, I never. Yeah. In I think mag in magic, I never felt like a like a planeswalker fighting fighting no. another planeswalker. So from a meta perspective, I think Mage Wars is um, a way more thematic than magic. Yeah. Yeah, but definitely. only from the meta perspective. If I have the feeling, um, I have the feeling that I'm a real mage there. But um, in magic, the micro perspective for me is more thematic because okay. if you look at the individual cards, they are great. Though, um, if you look at some creatures, for example, they behave exactly in the game um, from a mechanical point of view, like I would expect these creatures to behave in um, fictional reality. True. Yeah. For example, um, 
Let's go back to the set that I mentioned, Innistrad, for example, which is about the gothic horror theme. There you have, let's say you have a you have a creature there, which is a it's a vampire, and um, there's a mechanic you can how you can transform that card. So and you have to flip that card over to transform it into something else. In this case, into a mist. And okay. while it is a mist, it it is very hard or it's um, unkillable because yeah. no other creatures can attack it. So this is very thematic for me. You have yeah. the, and it's the same with werewolves, for example. You have a human on one side and then some trigger needs to happen and you flip the card over to become a werewolf. Yeah. This is nice. And yeah. for example, if you play some kind of um, full moon effect, um, then the card flips immediately. Or okay. there is a card that is uh, called, a uh, very difficult name, uh, Triskaidekophobia. It's uh, the fear of the uh, number 13. Right, yes. And um, the card says that you lose the game when you have 13 life. Well, it's, right, okay. It's kind of <laughs> neat and thematic. Yeah. Um, and there, there, this is a point where I think magic is a little bit um, better than mage was on the micro perspective. Okay. And there's one more card which I like to mention because it is just a great implementation of uh, how to do a top-down design for a single card. And this card is called Form of the Dragon. So for this card, I think someone at Wizards had the idea um, that I, I want to make a card that turns the player into a dragon. Right. So how can we do that? This would I think this must have been the idea to create this card. And then somebody thought, okay, what do dragons do? They breath fire. So at the beginning of each turn, the if you have this card in play, it deals five damage to, to a creature or a player. Yeah. And what else do, um, do dragons do? Um, have that they fly so the card also uh, makes you only attackable by flying creatures right and and so this 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 is a small thematic aspect of the cards on in magic that makes the game very thematic yeah. for me even if it doesn't have the meta perspective yeah i mean you know I, i've played hundreds of games of magic the gathering i was you know it's, it's all i did for two years i had you know i didn't <laughs> do anything else other than play magic the gathering at no point during any of those games did i ever feel that i was a mage me casting neither. spells and no i was just I, I played a card it was a six four card and you know things like that whereas you know i i mean as i say i last played 20 years ago so the sets have probably changed and the environment's probably changed but other card games that i play ashes i think is a fantastic game um i've also been playing a lot of the pathfinder adventure card game recently which mm -hmm. is very very random extremely random but one thing that i love about it is that all of the spells in the game and all of the creatures in the game, like you were saying with the vampire, when you read it, it's a game mechanic. And it's put there and it says, when you draw this card, choose one random item from your deck and put it under this card. Oh yeah, because he's a thief and he's stolen something. Right, okay. And then when you do this, and then he, uh, every single line of text that you read, which is a game mechanism in the Pathfinder game, you can associate that with the actual card effect or the creature effect or anything else so yeah it's massively random because you've got card draw look of the draw and then you've got yeah. roll to resolve but i like it because of the way that all of the things seem to fit together you know thematically so i like it as well and mike selinker the designer has yep. already been a guest on this show as well oh has he cool yeah, right yeah. and we we recorded a very nice session about that um i will link it in the show notes for everyone who is interested yeah. and i've done four playthrough videos of it so far some of them have so, been solo some of them have been with friends and i will be picking up the series again in i think november great i, th I think yeah sometime I november december. have to link them in the show notes as well 
Yeah, cool. So that people can follow it. Um, and since we are talking about card games at the moment, um, I have another example of, um, or a good example for two card games that implemented more or less the same thing in two different ways. Okay. One of it being thematic from my point of view and the others not other not at all so the games i'm talking about um, are lord of the ring the living card game yeah and aventuria the card game okay i've played one of those the okay. first one so okay in lord of the rings you control three heroes um and in aventuria you only control one character which already might might make a big difference when it comes to uh, uh, being immersed with the game but that's not uh, the thing i want to talk about um, the real difference here comes from the non-combat actions that your characters can perform mm -hmm. in lord of the rings there is a quest phase every turn and players have to commit their heroes to a quest yeah? yeah and you have to tap them and they can't attack or block while they are on the quest that's okay it's thematic for me that's fine yeah but then you have to compare willpower of the hero to the encounter card That's it. If yeah. the willpower is higher, you make some progress. If the willpower is lower, uh, you increase the threat level. Yeah. So there is nothing, not nothing thematic here for me. No, it's just um, numbers. It's just comparing numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so two values compared. And then um, let's have a look at Aventuria instead. In Aventuria, each quest comes with different hero action cards, and these cards allow players to perform quest-specific actions, usually by performing skill checks. Um, and these actions usually have a significant impact on the game and the story. So I give you an example. Players can, for example, dip their weapon into uh, consecrated water to perform better attacks against the demon boss. This okay. would be a sp specific um, card. Um, and on the card, the action is written and players can take that action, um, see if they succeed to, um, to get the bonus. Um, at the end, both implementations aren't too different. Um, you always have to do a skill check or compare values. Right. Another example of um, Aventuria would be that um, how they implemented the theme is by adding quest-specific roles. You don't only have spe quest-specific cards, you also have quest-specific roles in a scenario. And in one quest, for example, um, is about rescuing the mother of one character. And in the game, it is then randomly chosen uh, whose mother it is, which doesn't make a lot of difference in the game. But at one point in time in the game, only the player whose mother it is is able to allow um, to perform certain actions to rescue the mother because she is somehow cursed and only reacts to her child. This really helps to add the narrative aspect of the game through mechanics to to feel as a player, feel more immersed with the character you're playing. And um, mm -hmm. I, lo I love that. Um, and I really miss that in a lot of other card games. So that is um, a good example of what I think um, could be done by other game designers, that you add quest-specific actions and quest-specific roles. Yeah. And I think it's also very good implemented in, um, in Arkham Horror, the card game, which you already yeah. mentioned as one of your favorite yeah. thematic games. So why would you say Arkham Horror is thematic from your point of view? Um, it's, it's when you start reading those keywords and you read the keywords and you go, okay, so what, what does this keyword mean? This is massive, right? The, the, this enemy is massive. Let's look at what this keyword means. Massive, right? It's considered to be engaged with all people at your location. Yeah, that, that makes sense. It's never engaged with anybody in particular. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the rule about accidentally hitting somebody else 
if it's attacking another, right, that doesn't apply because it's mass. Yeah, okay, it just all makes sense. So when you're playing the game, although there is the draw the token out of the bag to see what happens and the random card draw, um, I, I, I do feel that all of the stuff that happens within the game is quite thematic. Now, I mentioned there are, there are some problems with it in that, you know, you should go in carrying your gun. And, and you can't, mm. uh, you know, you've got to wait for it to find it in your deck and things like that. And your allies are just cards in your deck and eventually they will pop up in the middle of a scenario. Oh, where were you? Oh, I was, I was hiding behind the cupboard. Did you not see me? And it's like, you know, it's, it's a bit weird. Um, but other than that, I mean, I, I, the, the reason I, I love the game is not just because of the thematic. It's the narrative element. It's the story. It's the decision. It's the setting. It's the environment it's just everything about it um and i'm doing a live stream of that on wednesday so i don't know when this podcast is due to go out but we're recording this on the monday this wednesday yeah. i'm doing uh, i'm doing the last chapter i of... hope to get it online on on tuesday okay so tomorrow <laughs> i will be doing the um yeah the next the next live stream of our arkham horror campaign so now you put some pressure on me editing the show Great. there you go <laughs> Yeah, I, lo I love Arkham Horror as well. It's um, it's very thematic, and um, I love the setting. And you really, you really get immersed with the game because yeah, um, I really like that it has two different um, stories that go on. So you have on one side you have the um, the story that you want to push forward mm -hmm. as a player, and on the other side you have the the agenda uh, the agenda that is pushed forward by the by the AI of the game by the enemies. Yeah. And I love how this works together and. Um, looking around for clues and stuff like that this this it re really feels thematic and um, immersive for me yeah and some of the times i mean it, it's the same with almost all of these card games nowhere is telling you what that mechanism means so for example in in the very first scenario of arkham horror you are in your study there's no way out the door has gone missing you can't find the door it's suddenly disappeared it's very very strange There are eight clues on your location in a four-player game. And the current act says, once you have eight clues, advance. So you know that, okay, so these eight clues represent us searching the room. And once we have searched the room enough, we will then find the door. That's what they represent. But it doesn't tell you that. It just mm -hmm. says, put eight clues on here. And then once you've got eight clues, you flip the card over. And, and that's it. You know, no, in, in none of these games does it actually write down in text what this represents. But that's fine because you can kind of work out what it represents. It's, it's usually fairly obvious. Yeah, um, from, a, from, a, um, from your perspective, you have explained a lot of different games to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Would you say it helps when a game is, uh, the, the mechanics of a game are thematic oh, um, yes. to explain the rules to, to yes. the players? <laughs> Absolutely, most definitely. Not only does it help me explain, well, it helps me explain because it helps people understand. So it makes my job easier because players understand it. So you explain the rule to them, And they, then they listen to it, and then you go, and this is representing the fact that, da, 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 and they go, ah, yeah, right. Okay, so you, you, you see it. And it not only makes the game more enjoyable for me to play, but it makes the game easier for people to learn, easier for people to remember. And again, going back to my example later, you know, earlier on, I can only work half a day chopping down trees in the forest, but then I go home and I get brownie points with the wife because I've come home early. That makes sense. 
in the game, what you're saying is, take two green cubes and move your counter one space up on here, or take three green cubes, or take four green cubes but move your red marker down one space. That's what I'm saying from an abstract point of view, but thema- but suddenly for, for everybody to oh wait wait a minute what I've got three mm-hmm. choices one of them is take two green cubes and move the yellow marker up one or I can take three green cubes and not move a marker or I can take four green cubes and move the red marker down one nobody's going to remember that no yeah. but you suddenly explain what that is and straight away people are going oh yeah I can go home early and watch TV or I can stay late and I'll be tired the next day yeah and, you know and you put fatigue on the bar and you put a little red heart and you put you know brownie points with a little gold smiley face on the yellow track or something like that and suddenly the 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 rules of that game are easy to remember and let's go back to mage knight one of one of the first games you mentioned mage knight has such a terrible reputation for being oh my god there's excuse me i got something in my throat i just there we go. Right, bit of toast in my throat. Mage Knight has this terrible reputation for having so many rules and exceptions upon exceptions, and people just can't remember them. And I can because they're thematic. So if you're moving through a forest at night, it costs five movement points, whereas during the day it costs three. Well, that makes sense. If you've ever tried moving through a forest at night, it's not easy, right? If there's an enemy in the keep and you go on the hex adjacent to the keep and it's daytime, you can see the enemy. Well, that makes sense because I'm sat on a hill. I can look down and it's daytime and they're all out so I can see them. Whereas at nighttime, I can't see them, even if I'm adjacent. Well, that makes sense because it's nighttime and it's dark. All of the rules in that game make sense thematically. And yes, there's a lot of them. And there are a lot of exceptions. <laughs> and they are written very small in the room. And they are very, it's... very small. I can tell you why <laughs> off air. But that, yeah, Um and that's what that's that's why that game is a pleasure to teach. It's a pleasure to play, and it's you know it, it it's easier to remember that game because of the thematic explanations of the game mechanisms. Yeah, probably because the the rules then the people can better imagine the rules yeah. in, their, in their mind, and I think this is what is what thematic is all about to help people imagine what's happening in the game in their in their minds in their brain. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and maybe one follow-up question here is um, are there some kind of mechanics or that really are counterproductive to, to, to that? We talked about a few of them. Maybe you didn't like randomness when it comes to, to create thematic games. Um, what is about something like victory points, for example? Um, can you have victory points when you want to, um, want to create a thematic game? Or is it enough to call them gold tokens or experience points or whatsoever are there any kind of mechanic that are really counterproductive to um, create a thematic game from your point of view um yeah i mean you know there's a lot of victory point games out there and sometimes those victory points are called gold sometimes they're called prestige points or whatever they call them but essentially they they are victory points i don't i don't think they're a problem if your aim is to become the wealthiest merchant over a period of five years then it's the player with the most money at the end of the game who wins you know, it, it's as, it's as simple as that. As long as there there is an explanation for it, and again, going back to Stefan Feld games, I love his games. I have no problems with playing them, and I enjoy playing them. Is there a thematic explanation for the point systems in the games? Probably not. Probably not at all. It's just 
you know, you take this counter here and you also get three points. Well, why'd you get three points? From a game designer's point of view, it's because we know that tile isn't very good, so we're going to give you three points as well as taking it. Whereas that other one, you won't get any points when you take that tile because we know that tile is actually a really good tile in the game. No, no thematic explanation for that whatsoever, but it works absolutely fine in the game. So, yeah, depends what you're aiming for. The danger with going completely thematic is that you will end up with a game which isn't actually very good or balanced or doesn't work properly because you've, you've focused too much on the theme and go, oh, this will be cool, oh, this will be cool. And I think an example which people might hate me for saying is uh, Betrayal at House on the Hill. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's a very, very thematic game, but I don't think any of those scenarios were ever tested. <laughs> and I, I've only played it a few times, but I've got friends who like the game and they criticise it the same way. They say, oh yeah, some of these scenarios are just bonkers. It's clearly somebody's just come up with a random idea and go, oh, wouldn't it be funny if one of the players got taken over by the spirit of a little girl and then they had to run around and collect all of these dolls and throw them out the windows or whatever. Yeah, that'd be cool. Let's write that down. Da-da-da-da-da, done. Mm-hmm. And the people who are playing it go, oh yeah, it was really cool. I got to play this little girl and I got to do this and I got to do that. And I'm sitting there going... The scenario is completely and utterly broken. There is no way that the players can win. It's not been properly tested. It's not been thought out. So, and, and this is why some people think that I don't like thematic games is because they think that, you know, the thematic games are, you know, what I don't like is games that don't work and haven't been tested and aren't properly balanced. That's what I don't like. And I think it's, I think it's fair to say that a lot of thematic games have focused too much on the thematic side of it that they've actually not done a very good job of the actual game itself. And I want to play good games, whether they're thematic or not. It's the game itself that I want to play being good. That's a nice wrap-up. Thank you. There we go. Um, I've had a bit of a rant as well. So. Yeah. We are, um, <laughs> we are um, almost recording one hour now, so I think we should come to an end okay. soon. Um, but there's one more thing which I would like to mention regarding yeah. the... Um, design of games and that is um, exploiting cliches and stereotypes okay. so because the a lot of games when they are designed try to exploit cliches and stereotypes yeah and they do this because um, they want to get players immersed um, and therefore they want to um, meet that player expectations um, that they have already from outside the game. Um, and because if you if you somehow fulfill these cliches, um, people are easier drawn into the game and feel immersed with it. Right. Um, would you say this is a, this statement is correct, or um, would you would you tell people to try to design games that match the cliches that are already out there, or should they try to to find something new? Find something new. Yeah. Easy, easy answer. Okay. Can you explain <laughs> I mean, why? Yeah, well, you're right. You, you could design a dungeon crawling game where you're a group of adventurers going through a dungeon and fighting monsters and getting treasure and leveling up and there might be a story. And the people who like those types of games will be all over it. They'll go, oh, great. I love games like that. Here's another one. But then you get other games coming out which are completely outside of the normal wheelhouse of what anybody's done before and look very, very different. And I'm trying to think of some. Um, what's that one from Awaken Realms? Is it Ether Fields? I don't know that. I don't really know much about it. Um, but I've seen the miniatures of it and I think I remember watching the Kickstarter trailer and I was like, 
wow, this looks like a completely different idea for a game, completely different theme, setting, everything about it looks completely different, totally, you know, off the wall. So yeah, I would always recommend going with, you know, something new, like my English country garden. It isn't just about glowing, growing flowers in a garden in England, it's in the future with a weather control machine. I've, I've done something, you know, I've put a, put a twist on it. Yeah, um, I think it's putting a twist on it is the, is the exception here. So the, yeah, yeah. Great. So um, is there anything else you would like to to add to the topic of thematic games, to what we no, talked about I, today? I don't think so. I'm just, I'm just glad. Because if you'd have had this conversation with me 10 years ago, it would have been very, very different. And if you'd have had this conversation with me five years ago, it would have been very different. In fact, if you'd have had this conversation with me probably two years ago, it would have been very different. Um, like, like many people, I'm, I'm constantly evolving as a gamer. There are videos that I'm doing on my channel now that some people who knew me 10, 15 years ago are looking at them and going, oh my God, what's happened to Paul? You know, what, what, why is he playing these games that, you know, 15 years ago he would have been thrown in the bin? Um, so my appreciation for different styles of games has, has widened. I'm less strict you know, with, with what I'm stuck in. But, you know, and 20 years ago, I would have been playing completely abstract games, pushing cubes around and, and loving them. Now, I, I want something a bit more. I do want that the thematic connection because there's so many games out there um, and you, you generally want to play ones that are really good. Very nice. Thanks a lot. I think it was a great show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you for having me on. It was absolutely. And uh, I think we have to repeat it in two years when your mind we do when, when, when your again, mind has like, changed completely. Arkham Horror is a stupid game. I, I never <laughs> want to play it again. <laughs> it's the worst game I've ever played, and I've sold yeah. all of my cards. No, I've burnt them all. Yeah, that, that's what it is. So uh, no, no. Thank you very much for having me on. I I, I love chatting about stuff because you know it's in conversations like this. And I hope I didn't come across as somebody who's like you know arrogant. Oh, and I'm going to tell you how it is. This is how it is in my mind. And one of the reasons why I've evolved as a gamer is by having conversations like this with people like yourself. And you've said things which have opened my mind a little bit. And it's all, you know, you can't sit in your own little box with your own thoughts all of the time. So, yeah, talking to other people, getting other perspectives and other ideas. And I'd love to see what your listeners think. If you've got, you know, what is the method that your listeners will be using to feed back on this podcast? So we have a Discord channel. Yep. where people can um, can talk about the episodes. We also have a comments on the website. Um, so it's a little bit scattered for me. For me. Yeah. It's, uh, we also have a, um, Instagram, Facebook groups. I'm, I'm on all the social media and people cool. are sharing their thoughts. And um, when they share something about this show, I will point you into the direction so that you yeah. can also um, answer. That would be great. Yeah, unless, unless they say, who was that English guy? Don't have him on again. He was rubbish. Don't, don't, <laughs> I, don't share those with me. <laughs> I don't expect these, uh, these responses. So, um, But where can people find you if they want to uh, consume more of your contact and yeah. get in contact with you directly, maybe? So, um, I mean, the YouTube channel is where pretty much all of the videos are. So that's um, youtube.com forward slash gaming rules videos, all one word with an S on the end. Um, so all of my tutorial videos are there, all of my review videos are there, all of my playthrough videos are there. I'm doing a lot of live streaming. As of two months ago, my channel has had the biggest change um, in that I suddenly had an internet upgrade at home, I bought some extra cameras, I bought some extra technical equipment, um, and I can now do live streaming. And I am now live streaming, I think I did three live streams over the weekend, for example. So yeah, there's a lot of video content on my channel. 
um, of a lot of different games. And as I say, some of them are pure tutorials, some of them are reviews, some of them are playthroughs. Um, please don't go to my channel, watch one video and think, oh, that's all he does. No, I, I, I do a variety of content. But yeah, all of the stuff's on the YouTube channel. Um, I'm on social media as well. So Facebook is Gaming Rules Videos. Twitter is Gaming Rules Vids because Gaming Rules Videos was slightly too long. So I had to shorten it for Twitter. Um, but yeah, and you, you can get in contact with me any of those, any of those ways as well. Um, some of your listeners might be patron supporters of mine. So if they are, thank you very much. Um, a lot of the content that I do create is commissioned. So the rule books that I write, obviously that's a paid job. And the tutorial videos that I create, they normally take me anywhere between 30 and 50 hours to create. So they are paid for. But so much of the other content on my channel is only made possible through the support of my Patreon campaign. And yeah, my Patreon supporters basically um, give me the, the extra, the time off work. I, you know, I can justify taking that time off work to create all of these other content. Um, so yeah, pe people can check out the stuff on the Patreon page as well. Love it, great! I hope we can uh, we can meet in Essen because I will yes. be, will be there uh, this year as well. It's well, only one hour drive from my home, so it's much easier for me than for most of the other people to get there. Yeah. Well, when are you going? I Pardon? guess you'll be leaving on the Wednesday, or you'll be leaving Thursday morning. No, I will only be there on Saturday and Sunday. Oh right. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Send me a message beforehand. Let's not arrange it now because it's a yeah. long way away. Oh, it's only two weeks away. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much work to get done before then. I'm I'm scared. Um, yeah, just just drop me a message sometime and um, we can, we can arrange something. Perfect. That would be cool. nice. Okay then. I would say that's it for the show today. Thank you again very much. And to all the listeners, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye. Bye now.